Let's pray together. Father, it is our prayer that that you truly would speak in this time that your church would be built and your purposes fulfilled. Lord, I pray specifically in, in, in this text that we're going to uncover, I pray that you would use it to bring about conviction for sin, that we would see the severity and seriousness of sin, that perhaps even in this time, in this sermon, Lord, that, that someone here would be so disturbed in their sin that they couldn't leave this place without finding a solution. And I pray that the solution they would find would be Jesus. Uncover the sins of our hearts, Lord, that we try to keep in the dark. Bring about protection, Lord, for your church by uncovering sin today, Lord, if it would help us in the future. I pray, Lord, that many who may be struggling and guilt and shame of sin and they're, they're fearful of what would happen if it comes to light, Lord, I pray that they would be so stirred in their sin today that it would have to come to the surface. And they would experience the freedom of redemption that Christ offers. Lord, keep us from drifting. Keep us walking after you. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 26. We began Genesis 26 last week. We left off two verses. We'll start near the end of Genesis chapter 26. Growing up in the 90s, that like I and my sisters did, we had two favorite TV shows, Full House and Family Matters. Perhaps you've seen them. These shows were basically the same if you think about them. Each story, the life of one particular family. In each case, though, you didn't just have a mom and a dad and two kids living together. You had a mom and a dad, multiple kids, an aunt, an uncle, a grandmother, a cousin, a a nephew. Even in both situations, they had an annoying neighbor who would come over and basically live with them as well. The shows were appropriately named because they certainly had a full house of family members And in each episode, it showed a different matter that the family was dealing with. All the episodes were basically the same. Each show would present a a problem for the family that it was facing. And then miraculously, in a 30-minute time span, the the warm and fuzzy music would start and the, the problem would be resolved by the end. And everybody was happy and living together in harmony. And it just was so nice. I normally don't title my sermons, but this one I gave a title to. I've titled it Family Matters because in our text today, it's going to detail the drama 
in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. And what we're going to see is they too have a full house and complicated matters and strained relationships. But whereas Hollywood would want to give it a nice happy ending, we're going to see for this family, it ends in disaster. This is a long narrative. It's got many different episodes within it. So whereas normally I would just read the whole text at one time and then work through the text individually verse by verse. Today I'm going to do a little different. Today I'm going to read it little by little and I'm going to pause at different sections providing exposition as we go. And as we read these accounts, you're going to see that the primary problem for this family is nothing complicated, it's not fancy, it's nothing you've never heard of. The primary problem for this family is the problem of sin. How many families today are torn apart because of that very problem? And maybe you know what it feels like to have relationships divided, family members refusing to speak to one another, constant turmoil and friction, and the root of it all is that three-letter word packed with so much destruction, sin. Committing against one another, never being dealt with in a godly way. This is why families break apart. This is why we have any problem in life, because of sin. As we go through this section by section, this narrative, I want to highlight various aspects of sin and its destructive nature. So first, consider the simmering of sin. The simmering of sin. Look in Genesis 26, starting in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's just stop there. The first family we see in the episodes here is Esau. And trouble starts right away. He brings home a girl. He's gotten married. He brings her in, mom, dad, this is my wife, Judith. And just as they're reaching out to meet her, he says, by the way, here's my other wife, Basemeth. Two wives. And we're not too far removed from Genesis 1 and 2. We know this is not God's design for marriage. People sometimes ask, well, what does the Bible have to say about polygamy? Why doesn't it address it? Why does it condone it? And we just need to be careful that we don't make the mistake to see that or we need to understand the Bible is describing what's taking place here. It's not prescribing what should take place. The Bible will give us the blunt facts of history. Don't take those details as condoning the actions. Not only has Esau brought home two wives committing the sin of polygamy, but he's married one outside the faith, women from Godless ideologies. He's unequally yoked. Times two. And notice verse 35 says, And they, Esau, the wives, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, they have bad relationships together. 
They have annoyances, kind of subtle jabs at the table. They have outright wrongs committed against each other. These wives come from different cultures, different gods. This is why I'm describing this whole section here, these two verses, as simmering in sin. It's like a pot of boiling water. It's under the surface. These relationships are ready to explode at any moment. They're right on the edge. They're just barely hanging on. And this is the environment that this scene starts with this family. It's a mom and dad living in bitterness to their son and their two wives from other cultures, other gods. This is a family that's a ticking bomb. Maybe some of you today know what it's like to have relationships in your life, in your family that is on edge constantly. And you know in that situation between those two individuals that just if one more offense happens, just one more family dinner, just one more sideways remark and it's just just gonna boil over. That's the thing about simmering. If you let it simmer for long enough, it's either going to burn or boil over. What relationships do you have in your family potentially, in your friends even, that's at a simmering point. There's sin that's been there and it's about to boil over or burn a bridge altogether. Remember the words of Christ. Blessed are not the ones who avoid it. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Brothers and sisters, don't live a life where you're simmering in sin, waiting for it to explode. Second, consider the selfishness of sin. Look at chapter 27. Here we go into the next section. The selfishness of sin. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older, brother, older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me a delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. This is the blessing that Isaac wants to give Esau. It's a blessing of passing the patriarchal torch, so to speak. In other words, Isaac looks around at everything that he has, everything he's been blessed by with from God, and he sees the promises that God has given to him just like he gave them to Abraham. And now they've passed to Isaac, but Isaac is now getting old and he's about ready to die. And he knows that these promises and blessings and inheritance must pass to his sons and specifically one son. And here's the key. He wants to decide which son it goes to. If you remember, Isaac always had a special love for Esau. And so he's on his deathbed and he wants to formally prepare Esau in particular to take over the seat of authority, so to speak, to receive the blessing of inheritance and promise. He wants to pass this position of power to his oldest son, Esau. And we might think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, in those times, it was very common that the power of attorney, so to speak, the inheritance, the, the promises would be passed to the older son. Well, what's wrong with this is God said from the beginning, the inheritance, the blessing, the promise goes to 
Jacob, not Esau. That Jacob would be in the position of receiving this blessing. And this was, this was God's plan. God had spoken very clearly. This is what is to be. And yet, even though Isaac knows God's plan, even though he knew for a long ago that Isaac sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, remember? Even though Esau is living in godless polygamy, even in all of that, Isaac wants to do what Isaac wants to do. He loved Jacob, but not like he loved Esau. I know what God said, but this seems better to me. My favorite son, my favorite meal, my preferred plan. This is why I highlight the selfishness of sin here. Kent Hughes, a commentator, wrote, this family has no heroes in it, only sinners, and Isaac is the chief of them. Isaac is blatantly opposing God and indulging in his own desires instead. And listen, in your life, when there's sin in the camp, you can guarantee selfishness is there somewhere. James 4 puts it like this, quote, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? That's why you strain in relationships with people. Because you want what you want and they want what they want and you're at battle against each other. Church family, friends, I would ask you, what desires are causing you to act in selfishness today? What relationships do you have that are strained currently because you're clinging too tightly to what you want and they're clinging too tightly to what they want? This is the selfishness of sin. It simmers and it's selfish. Number three, consider the scheming in sin. This is Genesis 27, starting in verse 5. Now, when Rebekah was listening, when Isaac spoke to his son Esau, so Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it. Rebekah said to her son, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. So Rebekah says to Jacob, now therefore my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the, the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. The scheming nature of sin. 
You can imagine um, Rebecca's eavesdropping outside of Isaac's room as he's telling Esau to go out and prepare a dinner so he can come and be blessed. And immediately Rebecca starts scheming. She knows God's plan is to bless Jacob, not Esau. And now she's worried that, well, Isaac, my husband, he's not following that. And so I need to fix this. I need to take matters into my own hands. How many times in Genesis do we see people taking matters into their own hands instead of trusting the Lord? This is what Rebecca does. But now notice as Isaac sends his favorite son out, notice she goes to her favorite son, Jacob. She comes up with this elaborate plan. Go get a goat. I'll cook his favorite meal. You can act like Esau when you go in. Since, he, since your father's basically blind, he won't be able to tell the difference. And we'll steal the blessing. Now so far, the sin is on Rebecca. Jacob still has a choice in the matter. And when he hears this plan, he objects to the plan, but for all the wrong reasons. See, what he should have said was, Mom, this is wrong. We can trust in the timing of God. We can trust that God will do what he said he will do. Mom, we cannot do this action of deceit. Instead, he hears her plan and he says, I can't do this because, you see, Esau is hairy. And mom, you know I've never been able to grow a beard. Like, I'm a smooth man. Dad will know the difference. The problem is not that it's wrong and deceitful. The problem for Jacob is practical. I'm not hairy enough. He's, he's going to know when he feels me. He's going to know it's not Esau. And verse 12 is telling. He says, perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself. Other translations say, perhaps I'll be a deceiver in his sight. See, Jacob isn't worried about actually being a deceiver. He's not worried about actually mocking his father. He's more concerned about getting caught. Getting caught as a deceiver and mocker. More concerned about the punishment and the curse that's going to come if he is found out. How many of us are only regretful in our sin when we're caught in our sin? How many fear sin, not because it's wrong, but you fear the consequences that will come? Here's a key question to ask yourself in your heart of hearts. How do you know if you're genuinely broken over sin or if you're just fearful of the consequences? A question to ask yourself to answer that question. How do you know if you're genuinely broken over sin? Ask this. If you could sin, whatever that sin is in your mind, if you could do that sin and never get caught and no one ever find out about it and there never be any result, consequence, punishment for it, would you still do it? See, lots of people don't want to go to hell. Well, what if hell didn't exist? What if the consequences were taken away and nobody ever knew? Here's how you know if you're truly broken over sin. 
because you hate it with everything in you. Not primarily because you're gonna be punished for it, not because of the fallout effect that's gonna have on other people. No, you hate sin because God hates sin. And you love God and you wanna love what he loves and you wanna hate what he hates. And it disturbs you when you sin, not because you're gonna be punished, but because I have, I have sinned against God. I hate sinning against God. One of my favorite lines in the hymn, Come Thy Fount, sings, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see your lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, I'll sing your sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. When we cry out, come, my Lord, no longer tarry, it's because we want sin to be done. We are sick of wrestling with it. We're sick of battling every day with sin, not because we don't want to get caught or because of the consequences. It's because we hate sin because God hates sin. Do you hate sin because God hates sin? Or do you hate getting caught? Oh, that we would have the perspective to say, on that day when free from sinning, I shall see your lovely face. Jacob doesn't fear sinning. He fears getting caught. Are you scheming in sin today? Some kind of plan, some kind of maneuvering. And the only thing that's gonna make you stop that sin today, this week, tonight, is if someone catches you. How many of you are cozying up next to sin? And part of your scheming includes making sure no one finds out. Mom doesn't know and dad doesn't know either. Husband doesn't know, wife doesn't know either. My boss doesn't know, the authorities don't know. And you feel good and you feel safe as long as it stays that way. Friends, let me give you this unnerving reminder. God knows. And not only that, God sees and he hears and he records Nothing you do, not even your most darkest secret, your, your, your most secret well-schemed sins are hidden from God. Every time you indulge in sin, every time you scheme and you say, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to see, nobody's going to find out, and you dive headfirst into sin, you might as well say, hey God, watch this. Because he sees. He knows the motives and the actions Jacob is more concerned to get caught. He says, Mom, what if Dad notices and I'm cursed instead of blessed? And she responds, shockingly, verse 13, let your curse be on me. You obey my voice and go. You know what she's saying here? She's saying this may be wrong, and this may result in a consequence, but the consequence will be worth it. How many people go headstrong into sin with that logic in mind? How many of you are just, just swimming in sin that you don't want anybody to know about right now? 
and you have the logic in your mind, this may be wrong and God says not to do it, but it's going to be worth it. Brothers and sisters, hear the slithering voice behind that lie. Sin is never worth it. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is not true. What happens in the dark stays in the dark is a lie. Just just take the fruit. You won't die. You'll live. And you'll live to the fullest. Just, Just take it or just... Just take the woman. Take the man. It's on the lunch break. No one will ever know. Just live a little bit. Take some under the table. You'll be set. Stretch the truth. You'll get your way. Watch for a second. Oh, you know what? You watch for a second, you might as well watch a little longer. You know what? You might as well watch an hour. It just keeps going. It'll feel good. In our temptations, there's a constant lie that says it's wrong, but it's worth it. And every person who has walked down that path has realized or realized soon it wasn't worth it. I lost my family, I lost my kids, I lost my dignity, I lost my retirement, my job, I lost the relationship, I lost my purity. I lost it all because I knew it was wrong, but I thought it was worth it. How many of you, church family, I'm, uh, my prayer is sincere this morning. I, as I was sitting in my study this morning, I'm praying over this sermon. I was praying, Lord, this might be a painful sermon for some, but if you could be delivered, it will be beneficial in the end. How many of you are playing in sin today and you're thinking it's wrong, but it's worth it and you'll soon find out it's fool's gold? Every sin comes with a sting. And here's the thing about sin when you undress it. It looks good on, it looks worth it on the outside like a nicely wrapped gift box but when you take off the top the hornets come flying out. Oh how we justify our sin sometimes by thinking it's wrong but it's worth it. They even do the the silliness of cook the food and get me the the skin from the goat, the hair. I'll, I'll put it on your hands. I'll put it on your neck. This is what scheming and sin does. It makes you stupid and silly and senseless. All for the sake of fulfilling selfish desires. Scheming and sin. Number four, consider the scandal of sin. So this is Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse 18. So he, this is Jacob, he's got the food, he's going into his father. So he went to his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said the voice, and he said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are Esau's hands of Esau. 
And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and he kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is scandalous. They've, they've schemed their plan. He goes in. They execute their plan. Jacob explicitly lies three times to his dad. First, he goes in the room, and Isaac says, who are you? He responds, I'm Esau, your, your first son. And second, Isaac says, how'd you come back so quickly from hunting? And he responds, because the Lord your God granted me success. And third, Isaac says, are you really Esau? He says, I am. The unashamed nature of Jacob's lying is chilling. The usage of God's name in vain is damning. The outright deception being used to mislead and steal is simply scandalous. In any other situation, when we hear of something like this, someone using deception in order to steal, in order to cover up the truth, and then that person prospers as a result, we say that's scandalous. And here Jacob is, acting from an evil desire and coveting heart. He's lying, he's misusing God's name, he's deceiving his father, and he gets the blessing as a result. Which is stunning because what Jacob's done is awful, but he gets a blessing. Isaac says, on you may the God's dew from heaven fall, meaning may you receive the goodness and kindness from God on you. On you may you have the fatness of the earth. There's just bountiful provisions for you, Jacob. May you have plenty of grain and wine, just resources overflowing. May, you, may people serve you. May you have authority and power. May you be Lord over your brothers, just kingship and rule. Cursed are those who curse you. Blessed are those who curse you. Just protection and prosperity all on top of this scandalous Sinful action. It looks like they've succeeded. And sometimes sin pays for a moment. It's like, if you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, the kids go to the county fair and they're all excited to jump on the rides. And then all of a sudden, this, this young boy brings out, he's like, hey, look what I secretly, secretly snuck in. It's just a big bag of chewing tobacco, right? These young 10-year-old boys never had it in their life. And they fill their cheeks with it. And they go and they jump on the ride. And it's spinning and it's twirling and it's going up and down. They're looking at each other like we're having the times of our lives. We're big and we're grown up and we're, we're men. We're chewing. We're, only, we're having fun. And all of a sudden, the face changes. Because in all the spinning and all the twirling and all the swallowing, they're about to lose it. And if you've seen the movie, they do. They're spinning and they start spraying everyone around. Some of you know that experience. Sometimes sin pays for a moment and it's fun. And it seems worth it. And then all of a sudden, you start to lose it. 
it comes to the surface and you spray everyone around you with the effects of your sin and you walk away miserable. That's how sin is. Feels good for a time, it will soon destroy you. This is the scandal of sin. Fifth, consider the souring of sin. This is, we're nearing the end here. This is verse 30 of chapter 27. Consider the, scour, the souring of sin. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. He's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered, and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all of his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling place, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break the yoke from his neck, your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning of my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I describe this section as the souring of sin because that's exactly what happens when sin is left unresolved. Esau is furious. He's, find, he's found out what his brother has done and when he realizes it, he's no way to change it. Hate grows in his heart. He begins to fester, begins to sour over it all. He begs Isaac for a blessing. But all he gets is the opposite of what Jacob gets. Away from the fatness of the earth, he's going to live by the sword all of his life in hostility. He's going to be a servant to his brother, rebellious tendencies. And the text uses the strongest possible words for Esau's feelings. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob. And then he starts his own scheming. After my father's died, I will kill my brother. A hard heart turns into a hateful heart. And a hateful heart turns into a motive of murder. A few weeks ago, I was cleaning out our van and I opened the trunk to get the stuff out of the back of the trunk and there was our stroller and I pulled the stroller out as I was just cleaning it out and underneath the stroller, I found a grocery bag. A grocery bag that had rolled under the stroller when we had gotten our groceries and we were carrying them in and we missed this one because it rolled under the stroller. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder what we left in here. So I got the bag out, I opened it, and it was two avocados. And these two avocados had joined together now through mold. And they had turned into this big brown and green clump of soured avocado. That's a picture of what happens to 
our hearts when we have sin residing within us. It begins to corrode and and rot and sour. We become bitter and resentful and full of hatred. That's what Esau's acting like in anger and jealousy, resentment, hatred here, full of vengeance and murder. The souring nature of sin has captivated his heart and he's going after his brother. In all these areas of sin that I've mentioned is your heart souring towards someone right now, full of vengeance and rot and corrode. Sixth, consider the suppressing of sin. Verse 42 of chapter 27. Esau's mad and 42 says, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. What what should I bereft if both of you, if I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your father's mother's father, and take your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land and of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Once again, Rebecca, she hears the plan. Esau's gonna kill Jacob. She starts frantically working to protect her baby boy, Jacob, and she comes up with another plan. She says, you know what? If, if he marries one of these foreign women around me, I'm gonna die. And so she tells Isaac, Isaac, you gotta send him away. He's gonna marry one of these women. He can't marry one of them. You gotta send him away. And so that's what he does. He sends him away. I'm highlighting the suppressing nature of sin here because of this reason. When Rebecca hears of Esau's plan to murder Jacob, what does she do? Her first instinct is not to make wrongs right, not to reconcile the two brothers and bring restoration. No, her first instinct is to get rid of it, to avoid it, to suppress this problem. If you've ever tried to hold a beach ball under the water in the pool, you look silly as you dance all around as it tries to rise to the surface. Brothers and sisters, this is what sin does. When we try to suppress it, it keeps fighting to come to the surface. What sin are you trying to suppress today, to get rid of today, to take everybody's mind off today, to avoid today? And it needs to come to the surface. It needs to be dealt with. Instead of dealing with the sin, she tries to conceal it, send them away. Seventh, this is the final consideration I'd give to you for sin. Last one, seventh, consider the spreading of sin. Last part of the text, chapter 28, verse six. 
Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take the wife from there and that he blessed him. He directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael. Here's another member of the family. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Notice the entire family matter starts and ends with Esau and his wives. It's like two bookends of this family drama. This time, Esau hears how much displeasure it brings to Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob would marry one of these foreign godless women. And so Esau says, hmm, maybe I can get approval if I go and marry inside the faith, inside the approved people myself. And so he does. He goes to Ishmael and he finds another wife. He tries to earn his way back with Isaac and Rebekah. But even in his efforts to find approval with his parents, to stay on par with Jacob, Esau's sin spreads even more. Now he has three wives, and his new wife is from the rejected uncle of the family, the line that Isaac himself, with has, Isaac himself has strain. See, what started with simmering in sin with Esau and his two Hittite wife has now ended with sin spreading further for Esau, and it's gone throughout the camp. Isaac acted in selfishness and opposition to God. Rebekah has been a gossip, conspiring, arrogant, dishonest woman. Jacob has been deceitful, a schemer, covetous, and liar. And Esau has been resentful, angry, filled with murderous and hateful thoughts. Sin has shown its true self in this family. How easy it would be to say, now you go and sin no more like this. That's true. But shouldn't this narrative make us all a little uneasy? I mean, after all, this is the family line that God has promised will bring blessings to the nations. And here we see them acting a mess like this. It should make us feel uneasy because Jacob, in all of his deception, still walks away with the blessing. Like, how is that right? This is why we must not read this one narrative in a vacuum. Meaning, yes, today, be reminded of the seriousness and severity of sin, but there's a bigger narrative that's going on in the Bible that we need to remember. That's the last point I have for you today. Yes, we've considered the simmering, the souring, scheming, all the the S's. I can't believe I found an S for every one of them, but the last point is the savior for sin. So don't lose sight of the end game. What God is ultimately doing in the line of this family. He's he's doing two things in this story. One, he's showing that his promised covenant is going to continue to keep going forward. Through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way through, the covenant promise is going to keep going. What he said he will do, he will do. Even through sinful people. That's what he's showing. It's going to keep going. And the second thing we need to see here is 
The promised covenant is in place because of sinful people like these, sinful people like you and me. There's a reason why Abraham wasn't flawless and Isaac wasn't completely honorable and Jacob wasn't perfect and none of the family members in the line of Jesus were except for Jesus. This is what God is doing. God's covenant will go forward and it's not about the the carriers of the covenant, it's about the one leading to the covenant because they're all sinners just like we are and we need the Savior to come for our sin. This is what God is doing here. If you're here today and you've heard me talk a lot about sin and you've never trusted Jesus, but you know what, you, you felt rather convicted in your sin today. Please hear this above everything I've said. You feel convicted in your sin and that's, that's true and that's, that's good if you feel that in your sin, but there is a savior for your sin. That if, if you would turn from your sin and you would turn to look at Jesus and see his life in perfection and see his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection of the grave. And you say, you know what? He did that for me to pay for my penalty. If you would trust that. You would not continue in the family ways of the world and distress and drama, but God would invite you into his family where you would receive the promised inheritance blessings of Christ. This is why Jesus' life was so important This is why his death on the cross was so critical. Because Jesus is the brother who doesn't deceive. He takes the penalty for your deception. He's the relative that doesn't plot against you. He's willingly plotted against for your redemption. He's the brother that doesn't just focus on himself. He intercedes for you daily. Jesus is the son and he doesn't conspire against you but stands in your place. And he's the savior who doesn't die for his sins but for yours. He's the conqueror. That through his resurrection, you can conquer death too. Friends, this is the, the salvation Jesus provides, the family you're welcomed in if you would repent and believe today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction in all of our hearts where we have sinned against you. that you would put your finger on the areas where we've silently let sin be simmering or we've secretly let sin continue to sour or we're intentionally scheming in our sin. I pray that you would bring such conviction so that we would know the sweetness of redemption in Christ. Make us a people who love his redemption and the godliness that comes from it. In Christ's name, amen.